Tuesday Night Mystery Club. Hello and welcome to the Tuesday Night Mystery Club. This is a show where I tell a guest a mystery story and they try and solve the, or guess the solution. I am your host, Caitlin McCluskey, and today I am very excited to announce I have a, another podcaster with me, the host of the She Done It show, Caroline Crampton. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. So you you host a podcast that talks about golden age of detective fiction kind of um, topics. Do you want to explain a little more about what you do? Yeah. So the episodes are normally between... 20 and 30 minutes and I pick a different theme or sometimes an author from what's known as the golden age of detective fiction which is normally defined as being the period roughly between the first and second world war so 1918 to 1939 although a lot of the tropes that were started then were then continued by writers through the 20th century Mm -hmm. so sometimes you get books from later that you can still reasonably call golden age but some of the big names from then which I'm sure your listeners will know Agatha Christie, <laughs> Dorothy L. Sayers, uh, Nio Marsh is another one, Josephine Tay, uh, yeah lots of great writers and mm-hmm. I've been doing the show since November 2018 and periodically someone will say to me like how do you find so much to talk about in just <laughs> this you know very small couple of decades of, of uh, publishing in a fairly niche genre and I say but there is so much still going (laughs) yeah there's uh I think one author that I have one of his books but I hadn't realized that they were such a well-known author until I was listening to your show um I think Anthony Berkeley is that the right name Anthony Berkeley yes and he published under that name and as Francis Isles and it's also him so I haven't read I just (laughs) I got the book going like, oh, I've never heard this before, so I haven't read it yet. But that was you. Your show kind of introduces your audience to like a really wide range of authors. Whereas, like, I guess the most famous is Agatha Christie. Like, that's that's where I started, and kind of all and I that's knew where for a, a lot long of time. people start. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And we're also really lucky, actually, that um, mm-hmm. we're sort of living in a a second golden age. In the I was that... just about to bring that up. You're uh, you had an episode recently, uh, Christy Christy for Christmas, the Chris, uh, Christy mm. for Christmas, and you kind of talk about that. Yeah. So, you know, crime fiction publishing of modern stuff is going amazingly. Uh, mm-hmm. In the UK, one of the I think that one of the books that sold the most copies in the entire year was a book that was published in October. So it was only out for about three <laughs> months of the year. And um, and it, it's called um, The Thursday the Thursday Night Murder Club or some very... I've very seen similar that all to your Instagram. podcast title. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. And it's, it is a modern set novel, but it's so similar to something like The 13 Problems by Agatha Christie mm-hmm. and various other books and it's got so many sort of golden age flourishes and homages in it uh, yes that it just seems perfect too perfect a <laughs> parallel almost um, and also just in on the front of the books that come from the 1920s and 30s it's mm-hmm. never been easier to get hold of them um, I have um, I have a friend who is a, a couple of decades older than me and you know she's described to me how as a fan of this stuff even mm-hmm. 15 years ago it was really hard 
to find them. You just had to rely on what came along in a random secondhand bookshop you went into on holiday sort of thing. Right. Whereas once eBay existed and online auction sites and online forums where people could exchange books. And Mm -hmm. then even more recently, there's been a real culture of republishing and reprinting. So authors who weren't as as popular as say Agatha Christie who's never really been out of print in any way but ones who were tremendously popular say in the 1930s but who then largely disappeared when their books went out of print maybe they died or their and then their heirs didn't really make much of it yeah you know things like the British Library Crime Classics imprint and, and Dean Street Press and various others have been bringing these books back so it's actually really easy now to walk into a mainstream bookshop and buy these things new which it's never really been the case since they were originally published. I love it. It's I, I'm discovering all these new authors as well. And so, yeah, it's so fun. I will, uh, I will link to your website in the description of this podcast if anyone is interested in checking out Caroline's podcast. Or you, if listeners are interested, you can search, just search She Done It in the app that you're using to listen to this now and you should yes, be able to perfect. find it. perfect. There you go. She Done It. So people might be wondering, I'm going to be telling you a detective story, but you are clearly well-versed in the golden age of detective fiction. So today we are going to be talking about The Word is Murder by Anthony Horowitz, who is a, a much more recent kind of detective fiction author. He started with his series with Alex Ryder, which is like a children's book series. And now I think he writes TV shows as well. I didn't look does, too much into yeah. them. Okay. I've I've seen I've seen, I had to re- once I had to review for work one of his his TV shows, um, which was called New Blood. It was quite okay. Good. I enjoyed it, uh, right. but yeah, I think he's he's best known as a novelist. Yes, yeah. I was uh, I was mentioning the name to a friend, and she had read the Alex Ryder series, so she hadn't heard of him, mm-hmm. or she recognized the name, and it was from kind of childhood to a degree. So I've I've never read any of his children's ones, but I mm-hmm. did work. I used to work in a bookshop through school and university, and okay. we used to sell them by the bundle. It felt like <laughs> they were. It was probably just. It happened to be the time when they were sort of at peak popularity. They were probably still coming out, and right. you know, kids coming in after Christmas with book tokens. It's all they wanted to buy. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't read that series. It wasn't on my radar, but I I read his magpie murders last this past fall and i thought it was fantastic it was such a good book it wasn't right for this podcast it was too complicated but uh that's i found this one in a secondhand shop so i was very happy to read it and it did work it's gonna work for a podcast i think it's pretty Mm. it's more straightforward as a murder mystery yeah so as i think i said to you when we were arranging this i i listened to an audiobook of his moriarty book Mm-hmm. when that first came out okay. uh, I was going through a Sherlock Holmes phase and looking for <laughs> everything and anything to do with it but and, and I did enjoy it and I, I I thought it was a good a good sort of follow-on from from the character but I just don't have time to read modern crime fiction most of fair, the time fair enough I understand that I, I spend I so only... much of my time <laughs> reading for for my podcast and sort of relatedly around it that yeah I just I just don't have time and people are often shocked at the extent to which I know nothing about what's going on (laughs) in contemporary crime fiction that's so fair I can I can't really read 
from all my own time, I, it has to be reading for the podcast, mm. which is fine because I love mystery books. Um, would you like to get started? Or do you have any yes, questions? Yes, let's go. Okay. No, no, let's awesome. do it. So this book starts with, we're following this character called Diana Cowper, and she's, the whole book is set in England, mostly in London, which is, it's kind of fun. I've never inter- in, interviewed anyone from England before, so you actually might know some of the places I'm talking about. Mm. I lived in London for nine years before I moved to where I live now, so okay, I might, I might have crossed paths with these characters, I don't know. <laughs> Um, so she's, she's in London and she's visiting a funeral home called Cornwallis and Sons, and it's to plan her own funeral. So that's kind of the, the introduction, the setting for the beginning of the book. And so she, she plans her funeral. She then goes and meets a friend for lunch. She goes to the Globe Theatre, which is the Shakespeare reproduction theatre. Uh, she has, she's on the board there and then she, she goes home kind of around dinner time. And is around this set, thirty. This is set now, is it? The, yes, it's um yeah, maybe yeah. early early two thousands is when it's set or okay twenty ten. Mm-hmm. This I, I guess I should say this book I think was published in twenty seventeen, but it's kind of set before, before okay a decade or so before. Reason I ask is just because the Globe Theatre hasn't actually been there that long. The reconstruction version of it. Okay, well then there you go. Yeah, so <laughs> must be since that. So she, she arrives home around dinner time, and about 30 minutes after arriving home, she is strangled and then found two days later by her cleaning woman. Mm-hmm. So at first, the police think that it was just a burglary gone wrong. There had been other burglaries in the neighborhood, but then they hear about the funeral home, that she had been to plan her funeral that day, and it kind of gets a little more interesting, right? Yeah, that seems like too good a coincidence, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. And especially for a mystery book. <laughs> can't be can't Absolutely, be a coincidence. Yes. <laughs> so this is when we kind of get introduced to Anthony Horowitz. And so this book is written like Anthony is writing about himself as if he's like a Watson character. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So he's he's said he's kind of saying he's in between jobs like he's just it's it's very funny because he's writing about all he writes about the alex Ryder series and some of the other stuff he has done but then i think he throws in some tv shows and movies that i mean he doesn't you can't really tell but i don't think he is working um for instance he he says that he's writing the tintin 2 movie script which i don't think is a thing that ever happened (laughs) <laughs> oh, I see what you, know. you mean. So it's sort of um, quasi-autobiographical, but embellished. Exactly. Yes. So it, that's it's, fascinating. Very clever. It was. It's pretty fun, and it was a little hard. Like I had to Google some things to be like, did that really? This happened in a movie? Because he'll talk about actors like this person played in Indiana Jones when it's just a made-up character, but Indiana Jones is a real movie. Mm-hmm. So it's. <laughs> I had to Google things and be like, did this happen? No, no, it didn't happen. That's just sometimes, I love that reading experience actually. There's um I don't know if you've ever read the uh Neil Stevenson, who's a sort of fantasy writer, wrote a h- historical book trilogy called the Baroque Trilogy, which is all about um sort of England and Europe in the 17th century. And okay. a lot of it is real historical characters, like the kings in it and like people I recognise from studying right. history and stuff. But then 
a couple of times I was like hang on a second Isaac Newton definitely didn't do that did he and then had to spend ages on Wikipedia trying to work out whether he did or not yeah and I thought it was great It, it made it it made the story totally feel real and and you kind of go did this murder actually happen I really liked it I thought it was cool mm. and for anyone interested if you want to still listen to this episode uh this series with this detective I think there's there's two more books in the series if you want to listen to this or stop listening go read it on your own if you like it so so he's in between jobs and he gets a call from a guy called Hawthorne who he has worked with previously on a tv show as Hawthorne is an ex-cop and he he would be called in as a consultant when he's when Anthony is working on tv shows that need that have cops in them and so he can kind of help right like um show them what a what a crime scene would look like and how how an investigator would act on the scene Mm -hmm. so he hawthorne wants anthony to write a book about him like a true crime novel and anthony's basically says flat out no like i don't i don't write nonfiction. i write fiction so sorry like that's you're gonna have to find a different author uh, but two days later, he's at a liter- literary festival and he's talking about, he's giving a talk about his Alex Ryder series to to mostly kids, but there's he kind of says there's always adults in the audience interested as well. When a, well, a woman asks him why he only writes fiction, and she kind of insinuates that he can't be a good author unless he writes nonfiction. Hmm. And... Not that that could, should mean anything, but Anthony kind of takes it to heart of like, should I? Like, am I am I limiting myself? Should I be trying to write nonfiction? Would it make my fiction better? And so it makes him question everything. And then he agrees to write this book for Hawthorne. He calls him back and it's like, okay, I'll do it. Hmm. That's such an interesting perspective because like, my background is in journalism and I've written a non-fiction book and never never written any fiction and mm-hmm. I very much encountered the complete opposite to that where people oh. who have a similar sort of career to me are like oh well the real writers are the ones who write novels for a living you know we're, <laughs> we're just sort of like jobbing hacks around the edges you know so this is the opposite absolutely which I think is <laughs> again something I've encountered a lot in writing and journalism and stuff is that the grass is always greener like everyone always thinks yeah. what everyone else is doing is very proper there you go so I don't think it, it, it could sound like Anthony had in no way be, been considering writing non-fiction but maybe because he's in between jobs he's feeling stagnant and he's kind of going should I be writing like maybe mm. this would help my career which is also kind of funny because clearly his he has a fantastic career especially with the Alex Ryder series but maybe it's that that kind of everyone always feels like they could be doing better yeah everyone always feels like everyone else is being very successful yeah they're not yeah yeah so from there and it's it's we still haven't totally got into the story Anthony is talking about how he had showed chapter one which we've talked about his chapter one was where he's introducing Diana Cowper Mm -hmm. and saying how she was strangled so that's he wrote that and Hawthorne reads it and goes, "This is terrible. Like you can't, you can't publish this because you're not, you're not telling us all the facts. There's too much extra like detail. Like he's kind of saying this should be more like a, like what a police report would be. Like you know, to the point. Mm. And so there's throughout the book, there's kind of that struggle. I don't, I'm not going to talk about it because it's we don't have the time. But that just to give like that's their dynamic is Anthony is a writer, Hawthorne is a police officer." ex-police officer and it's they're very different 
Right. So, so one of the things Hawthorne said was important that Anthony hadn't, hadn't mentioned was that she wanted, she wanted a, uh, I don't know this word, psalm, palm, like a, a Bible verse. Um, P-S-A-L-M. Yeah. Psalm. Yeah. It's psalm? a, it's a <laughs> psalm. Yeah. Okay. Um, she wanted a psalm, a Beatles song sung and a couple of things like that and Hawthorne's going like well you didn't say which psalm you didn't say which Beatles track so for your information it's psalm 34 and the Beatles song is Eleanor Rigby mm-hmm. and he goes like you didn't say who she met for lunch you just said she had lunch so she met with Raymond Clunes who is a um he was like a theater director and he's kind of questioning like why did she only take public transport like you don't you don't tell us why she didn't drive her car her her son, Damien Cowpore, was having money troubles and he was into drugs. Like, you don't mention that. And so all these things kind of then they start to talk about them a little more. So, and I'm going to get into them all later, actually. I'm going to leave those as kind of questions to think about. So from, I think, so Anthony has called back up Hawthorne. They've met for coffee to kind of discuss how the book is going to work. And then they go to visit the scene of the crime. And Hawthorne is super blasé. Again, this kind of like gets into his his character, but he just goes into the fridge and makes himself a sandwich with the dead woman's food. Yeah, that seems yeah. wildly inappropriate. Yeah, exactly. And so that's Anthony is describing that in the book to say like, this is who this guy is. He he kind of goes, well, she's not going to want the food anymore. Like that's his interpretation. <laughs> Someone's got to eat it. Okay. So he, Hawthorne thinks that it was someone that Diana knew because of the way things were, there was no forced entry, like she had let this person into her house, Uh, but he doesn't think that she had known him well because, and she, he thinks that it's a, it's him because it was strangulation. And this is something you've also brought up, I think, in one of your episodes about uh, a, a woman's crime versus a man's crime. So there's kind of that being talked about as well. Mm, Yeah, there's. I think quite a lot of discussion of strangulation in that sense that it's a kind of, it's intimate like it's a way of killing right. because you have to get up really close to the person yes um, and therefore it's often connected with sort of uh, personal or passionate crimes like jealousy or revenge as opposed to just um, I'm eliminating a professional rival <laughs> in a circumstance people right. might be more likely to like hit someone on the head with something heavy or poison them in that circumstance i think in practice a lot of these assumptions are a bit general (laughs) they don't really help you that much but yes it's definitely an existing uh idea right so that that kind of gets touched on a little bit it looks like the perpetrator had asked for a glass of water because the water is sitting on uh like the mantle in the living room the front room where where Mm -hmm. she had been killed and then the other weird thing is that her credit card is sitting on the mantle beside the glass of water. And it's it's weird that it's not in her her wallet, her purse. And uh, they look into it and no purchases have been made on the credit card that day. So it's just she's got it. Someone's got it out and then just left it there, which is right. odd. Right. And so throughout the house, they, they had thought it was a burglary originally because some things had been stolen. But there's things like um, she still has her diamond wedding ring on her fingers. So they haven't taken that. And so it's kind of a question about was it really a burglary or was it just made to look like a burglary or was someone looking for something specific and then found it possibly because yeah they didn't want this the ring clearly wasn't what they needed Mm -hmm. 
they had used the the curtain sat there was a curtain sash in the sitting room on the curtains that they had used to strangle her it looks like she had gone into the kitchen to get a glass of water and so maybe that was a ruse and then when she came back in they had strangled her mm-hmm. from what they can tell they they find a picture of her and her husband and Anthony's first reaction is oh like they're divorced and Hawthorne goes of course they're not divorced like she had the wedding band on still. She wouldn't have done that. No, he must. He's he died 12 years ago of cancer. Uh, so there's there's a little point there just of, of kind of the same like Watson-Sherlock dynamic of Anthony makes all the wrong assumptions and Hawthorne corrects him. <laughs> I see, yes. So the other thing is there's a... They're, they're just kind of looking around. Anthony is, is making notes of, of everything, so including the picture. He's, they see a key... It's like a fish-shaped key ring in the kitchen that has five hooks, and there's four keys on it that have labels on them. And the one they find interesting is there's one labeled with her the name of her house in Kent, which she doesn't own anymore, and so they're wondering why she still has the key. Mm-hmm. And that had been the the house where she had lived with her husband, and she had lived there after he had died, but then there had been a very tragic accident in deal and she had sold that house and moved to london uh which i will i will talk about that more later but just keep that in Mm -hmm. mind okay they go up to her bedroom and it hawthorne notices anthony doesn't pick again anthony doesn't pick up on this but hawthorne notices that there had been a cat living in the house and he's wondering where's the cat because they haven't seen it in her medicine cabinet there's some sleeping pills and so they're thinking she was she, maybe she was worried about something. She was having trouble sleeping, and so they've done they've kind of done their rounds of the house when Detective Inspector Meadows shows up, and clearly him and Hawthorne, the ex Inspector, do not get along very well. And Anthony, who I think is a he is an Agatha Christie fan himself in in real life, and he talks about it in the book. He compares this dynamic. He's wondering is Meadows going to be like Jap in the Agatha Christie series, you know, <laughs> right? So you can, yes. Like the blundering detective, Be- and again, that's it's it's that kind of dynamic of of Meadows saying that this glass of water is important, and Hawthorne going, "You won't find any DNA, like no one touched it." That kind of thing. Like he's he already knows, mm-hmm. but Meadows does make a point. He kind of he he tells Anthony to be careful around stairs, and so he's kind of making a jab at Hawthorne for why was Hawthorne kicked out of the police force? Because he didn't retire, he was he was fired. So did he do something wrong? Like why why are stairs this kind of why why is that a jab at Hawthorne? At Hawthorne? Yeah, that seems interesting. Like that could lead mm-hmm. to something. Yeah. So so Anthony kind of makes a mental note of it to <laughs> find out more information on his own. So from, from the crime scene, they leave to go to a coffee shop and kind of look over the files. And they one of the main things is Diana had sent a text to her son right before she had been killed that said, I have seen the boy who was lacerated and I'm afraid. Ooh, creepy. Right. So it kind of, th- these were this was like her last, the last thing she said. So what does it mean? And it turns out, as they're going through the files, and this is where we kind of go back to that accident in Deal. Which, by the way, that's that's one of the places. Do you know where Deal is? Is that a, a real place? <laughs> yes, it's a real place. It's a coastal sort of seaside place in Kent. It's not that far away from where I went to school, actually. Okay. All right, there you go. So that's her house in Kent is near 
It was near deal. She had been driving home from the golf. Uh, she was playing golf. She was driving home and she had come around a corner and hit two eight-year-old boys with her car. And one of them had been killed and the other one had had brain lacerations and was, um, uh. they kind of describe him as he was never the same after the accident. Right. So that's what the text message refers to then. That's, yeah, that's what, boy he, he's, yeah. they're kind of reading through it and going, so she's, did she see this boy? Like, is this, isn't she's afraid of him? That's why she was texting Damien. And is he grown up now? Is that, yes. is it long enough ago? Yes. And so they're, they're making kind of the note of, they're going to have to interview either this boy or his parents or, or whoever he would be. If it was 10 years ago, this, this boy is now 18. So he's, he's a man now, really. Mm-hmm. So the other kind of, terrible thing about the accident is it was a hit and run so she she had hit these two boys and then had stopped the car for a minute and then drove away she didn't actually stop and the re- apparently the reason for it is her son Damien had been home from school visiting and he had just been about to start his career as an actor and she was worried that she w- it would hurt his career and so she had gone home to talk to her son about it before turning herself into the police Right, so she was worried that it would be a tabloid story or something that would overshadow his... Right. Right, and so not a great person is the the sense you're getting. Yes, if that was her first thought. Right, exactly. So she ends up being found... Again, this is 10 years ago, so they're just reading these news articles. She ends up not being found guilty by the judge, and it's because at the time of the accident, she wasn't wearing her glasses which whenever that was, wasn't wasn't against the law. So since then, in the 10 years since, they have changed the law such that you have to be wearing glasses if you need glasses. But because it wasn't a law, she she's not guilty. She's found not guilty, which is mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah, I think now it has to be recorded on your driver's license Yeah, if you need glasses of a certain strength or whatever, so that, yes, if you're not wearing them, they will immediately know. Right. Yes, which makes total sense, but... <laughs> There are a lot of laws that are shockingly recent in that regard, aren't yes, there? Yes, exactly. Um, so from there, Anthony is like, well, we have to go visit this this boy and his family right away because he's now kind of on track with them. But Hawthorne is like, no, we do this methodically. Like, we're doing it my way. And he wants to go see Cornwall- Cornwallis. His name is Robert Daniel Cornwallis. He's the funeral director at the funeral home where diana had visited Mm -hmm. and they're they're kind of asking like did you see anything did diana was there an urgency like why why this day and he's he's kind of saying no i didn't there was nothing different about her than anyone else that comes in to plan their funeral which i wonder how common that is that someone plans kind of plans their whole funeral versus leaving it to the family but it must happen fairly frequently it must happen, but I don't, I'm lucky to say I don't have any personal experience of that yet. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm in the same boat. I think that's why I'm wondering about it. So he he does, talking talking to Corn, Mr. Cornwallis, he had called her, he says he had called her later in the day to get her husband's plot number at the graveyard because she wanted to be buried beside him. And he had heard while he was on the phone, it sounded like she was in an argument. Like there was a lot of, there was yelling going on. And so they're wondering mm-hmm. if that was when she was at lunch with Raymond Clunes, the 
theater director or while she was at the Globe Theater for as a, a member of the board. Right. So Hawthorne also asks Mr. Cornwallis and his, his secretaries in the office as well. She's actually the one that answers this. Her name is Irene Laws. Hawthorne asks, was Diana ever alone? And she says, yes, she had gone to use the toilet. Uh, but everything had seemed ordinary. Like it didn't, again, nothing stuck out throughout her visit. This mm-hmm. is a um, kind of fun thing too, especially having you on, I would say bathroom normally or washroom, but it was specifically written as toilet. Yeah, that's the British yeah. standard. We would say, you would say, I'm just going to go to the toilet. Um, and it sounds very American to my ear to say bathroom <laughs> when you're not attend you would you would say bathroom if you're going there to yes, you know, have a bath yeah. or a shower yeah no it <laughs> makes know? sense and that's act- that point to that i think bathroom is more canadian whereas restroom would be more american mm-hmm. okay and so when they when they leave the funeral home hawthorne observes diana cowpour knew she was going to die and so anthony kind of takes that as being significant because how how did she know throughout that day? Or did she know previously, like, what what had led up to this day that she, that she could possibly know? Hmm, yes. So from there, they go to visit the cleaner, whose name was Andrea, oh gosh, Klav, Klavanek. I don't think they say where she's from, but she she is a, an immigrant from maybe an East European country. Mm-hmm. And she had, she was the one who discovered the body. She had made a statement that she had, she had, unlocked the door as normal she'd gone into the house she'd seen the body and she'd immediately gone to wait outside for the police after after calling 999 which is another mm-hmm. interesting thing i would call 911 yeah that's not a number yeah yet. i know I, <laughs> that doesn't do it's anything just, I, I feel like there's just these little little things that when you're reading books set in different places it's fun to notice yeah so we have 999 for emergency right. services and then 111 which is for kind of if it's not an emergency yes. but you still need to talk to them so they've been making a big thing about 111 recently with right. the pandemic and so on that like if you just need advice health advice you should call 111 don't call 999 if it's right. not an emergency so know. i think we have i'd have to look it up but i think maybe 311 no there's there's definitely some line right. that is yeah if you want health advice you can talk to a nurse any time of day and you can call the police, but it's not, I don't think it's as simple as 111. That, to me, makes a lot of sense. Okay. Whereas I think, I'm pretty sure I've, I've actually used this a couple of times where if you need to sort of report something to the police, but it's not an emergency. So like, you know, if you just need to report like someone stole right. your phone or on the tube, that kind of thing. And you need to report it because you need the number f- to make an insurance right. claim, but it's definitely not yes. urgent. <laughs> I think that's the number you call. That makes sense. Yeah, I... I know that number exists, but it is not, I don't think it's a simple three number number. Mm -hmm. But so she, anyway, she calls the police and then waits for them. And Hawthorne almost immediately starts to lay into her saying, that's not what you did. There's no way it was raining that day. There's no way you went and waited outside in the rain. Like you stayed in the house. And he goes so far to say, you're, you're the cleaner. Diana would have left you money to take, like after you had cleaned the house, you knew where that money was. And we didn't find it. You took, I'm sure you took the money out of the the tin in the kitchen or whatever. And she denies it. And, you know, they have this back and forth. But she does admit eventually that she had taken the 160 pounds that was in the container. Mm -hmm. And he 
I think from this point, Hawthorne, again, this is, it's, it's that they're, they're kind of going about him, him being this kind of brilliant detective, right? So he, he seems to know even more. He knows she took something else. And so he asks her to give it to him. And it ends up being a, a letter that she has taken, which Hawthorne later tells Anthony he thinks she had taken it as blackmail. So the letter said, Mrs. Cowper, you think you can just get rid of me? but I will not leave you alone. What I said is just the beginning, I promise you. I have been watching you, and I know the things that are dear to you. You are going to pay. Believe me. Ooh. Yeah, so it feels pretty threatening as we're looking at it right now. And they ask Andrea, or Andrea, kind of a little more about, like, did she know more about this letter? And she says that a man had been there about three weeks ago. He had been very angry. And she thinks that he might have killed the cat, Mr. Tib- Tibbs, because the cat had oh, disappeared. No. And so that's kind of where they get their answer on that. Yes, there had been a cat, and they don't know what and happened to the cat. I suppose the obvious conclusion to draw is that the threatening letter is somehow connected to the hit and run incident right that yeah the boy or someone in the boy's family or something is is still wanting to is still because she didn't yeah because she didn't get convicted or anything they feel like there's still something that is owed and they do kind of anthony brings this up where he's saying it's it's almost 10 years to like anniversary to the accident Mm. um and hawthorne's very clear to say it's not 10 years it's nine and a half months but it is close to. And so there's definitely that kind of feeling of, yeah, who's this letter from? We need to we need to figure this out. Yep. So next they go to see Raymond Clunes, who was the theater director that Diana had had lunch with on the day, uh, yes. day she had died. And so the kind of big deal thing here is that Diana had enough money that she would invest in these theater productions. And... Okay. The most recent one she'd invested in, she had lost 50,000 pounds, and this is on the production of Moroccan Nights. Right, okay, so that seems like a, something she might be quite angry about. Then that's what that's what Hawthorne is insinuating when they're talking to Raymond Clunes, and he's going, like, how mad was she? Like, was she bitter? And of course, <laughs> Raymond Clunes is saying, no, like, all, all the investors, they know what they're getting into, like, these things happen, you know, you lose money, you win, you gain money, it's just, it's in the business. And uh, Hawthorne's not taking that. He doesn't believe him. Yeah, I feel like even even a very wealthy person would notice if they lost £50,000. It's a lot of money. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so, so I guess that's kind of kind of the point of they are not sure how much they can take Raymond Clunes' word for anything on on what, mm. what's going on with, with this with this production and how much how much money it had lost other people too would be kind of going into things. But kind of something interesting he says as they're interviewing him is that he knows that the anonymous letter, the threatening letter, was sent by Alan Godwin, who was kind of, as you were saying, was the father of the two boys hit in the in the hit and run. Right. Okay. Yes, that, that seems to make sense. Right. And I, I don't know that they can guarantee that the letter was from him, but he had been the man there three weeks ago who was angry and pestering her for money. Um, he wanted... He, he wanted money from her, and Raymond Clunes was saying that he was advising Diana not to give this man any money, like, to kind of try and cut him off. Like, don't don't engage with him, don't talk to him. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so I suppose if even if they can't prove the letter, it seems like a very reasonable conclusion, doesn't it? Right, and that's I feel like everyone is kind of on the same page, including Hawthorne, about that. And then the other kind of interesting thing is that Raymond Clunes knew the judge in the case of the hit and run. He had been, mm. um, the judge had also been an investor in his plays or in his theater yeah. productions. So Hawthorne's really paying attention to that connection and, and he's going to bring it up later as well. Okay. So the next day, the I think Hawthorne and Anthony get together and they kind of discuss the hit and run a little bit more. And kind of get into the story. And so the two boys, they'd been twin boys of the, the Godwin family. And they had been staying in deal with their nanny at the time in a hotel. And they had been on the beach playing that day. They had been paddling in the water. And the kids had run across the street to get ice cream when Diana and her car had kind of turned a corner and not seen them and hit them. And so there is some kind of talk of, would she have even been able to stop if she was wearing her glasses? There's definitely mixed opinions about that. Mm-hmm. So it's not a completely cut and dried case if it was definitely her fault sort of thing. Right. And it, that would be who you ask. If you ask the Godwins, it was cut and dry. Of yeah. course, like it's her fault. She wasn't wearing her glasses. But as again, as we continue into the story, there are people who have different opinions on that. And so they're just they're talking about how can you know? Who, who can you trust? Who What is the correct answer? So finally they go to visit the Godwins. And I think Anthony's pretty happy because he basically has, he feels like that that would have been the place to start is talk to them. Mm-hmm. And the first thing he notices is the house is kind of in serious need of attention, like for money to be spent on it. So they're kind of thinking that clearly things are not going well for the Godwins in more sense than one, kind of losing their son and having their other son kind of be completely changed after this accident. So they meet with Judith Godwin, the mother, and of course she kind of, they're they're kind of probing her and she finally goes, of course I'm not sorry Diana's dead. Like I don't, I didn't do it if that's what you're insinuating. I was nowhere near her, but I'm not, not going to be upset about it. She killed my son. She ruined mm-hmm. my life. Um, and so they talk a little bit more about, again, her perspective of the accident and then Mary, who was the nanny at the time, 10 years ago, she comes into the room because it turns out she still lives with the with the Godwins. She takes care of the son that l- survived, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. And at this point, Alan, the husband, he has he had moved out about a month ago. Alan and Judith had realized their marriage kind of wasn't working. Like, and again, from, from this accident, she's kind of saying she thinks if it, they just can't get over that. Neither of them can. Hmm. So Hawthorne questions Judith. He kind of goes to her. You had been in the vicinity of on the murder day. Like and he, he says he has CCTV footage of her coming out of the subway. And Ooh. so she's a little caught by surprise and goes, I didn't even know Diana lived in that area. Like that's why she hadn't said that she was in the area at the time. Cause she didn't know she was. And she says she was going to buy furniture because they're trying to sell the house. And the realtor had said they needed to make it look more beautiful and Anthony kind of thinks at this point he doesn't think that a little bit of furniture would change anything so he thinks it's kind of a loose (laughs) excuse (laughs) yeah I suppose that's one of those classic things in a mystery novel that could cut both ways in that um, sometimes a a writer does introduce a total coincidence that is a coincidence because it seems suspicious 
<laughs> she well, thinks that, you know. I think that that comes up in some books of how many coincidences can you allow? Like one coincidence? Yeah. Sure. Two coincidences? Maybe three? Definitely not. Yes, exactly. Even the, And I can't remember, I wish I could remember which book it it was in possibly it's um anthony barclay's the poison chocolates case which is a a book about mystery writing and solving and the sort of relationship between the two in which um they talk about this i think and they say that you know in real life coincidences happen all the time like you do run into people you know in huge cities and right, all this right. kind of thing but somehow we don't like them in fiction they seem <laughs> they seem forced if they happen in fiction yeah totally so exactly that's here it's it's and i think anthony is pointing to that of do we trust her or do we not you got that's mm. the detective has to figure that out so she they kind of ask about jeremy like is it possible that jeremy could have been in the vicinity and she says no her son never leaves the house on his own like he 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 doesn't have the kind of mental capacity anymore to to be able to to do those kinds of things on his own like he would need mm-hmm. i think it's it's to do with directions maybe like he wouldn't be able to remember how to get home right and and she they so they asked did diana come to see him and she's like definitely not she's never been in this house she has not seen him and so they also ask mary to retell her story and the kind of thing she points out at this point is that the ice cream store that the boys have been running across the road to go into was closed so it wasn't even like it, it kind of adds this whole new layer of sadness to the story of they they didn't even need to be crossing the road there was nothing there right it was pointless right then judith kind of allows them she wants them to see jeremy and basically to show them like if you don't believe me that he couldn't go out on his own like come up and see him and anthony describes it as the brain damage is evident in his speech and eyes that look vacant and i i kind of struggle with this sometimes of how to describe like what it what is an appropriate way to describe kind of disabilities Mm. yeah it's also a common trope in detective fiction isn't it that someone or indeed all kinds of crime fiction actually it's not um limited to purely sort of detective or older stuff that disabilities are sort of manipulated for plot reasons so like someone will pretend to not be able to walk right so that they will not be suspected and then it turns out that actually with some assistance they can walk or you know things like that so um so i think we are slightly invited sometimes to be suspicious of people with disabilities and that's not always very fair right yes and so that's as i was reading this i was just not sure exactly how to describe that, but I think the idea is that he did suffer from brain damage and that he is still kind of suffering from that or, or dealing with that and needs help with certain things. But at the same time, they come they come into his room and he's playing video games and he's just living his life too. Mm-hmm. Anthony does describe that he doesn't seem particularly aggressive. Like he's kind of thinking, I can't see this, 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 this guy doing anything harmful mm-hmm. so i think another maybe the next day or a few days later no later that day <laughs> not that it matters i don't think the timeline is super important in this book so don't worry <laughs> uh <laughs> hawthorne gets a call and it's damien cowbar is finally back in town and they're kind of noting this as significant so damien has he trained at 
and maybe you can help me with this, uh, if it's the RADA or RADA, the Royal Academy of... You would say RADA is how it's RADA. RADA, the Royal (laughs) Academy of Dramatic Arts. And it's sort of the... um, the poshest and most exclusive place to go for acting school. Okay, and they make it sound like, they in the book, they make it sound ex- exactly that, but they also never tell you what the acronym means. It's You're supposed to know. Right, and you're so supposed I to figured, know. <laughs> I figured you, you would know, but I do not know. <laughs> I had to look it up. <laughs> it's supposedly incredibly competitive to be able to mm-hmm. get in, like harder okay probably harder to get in than to Oxford or Cambridge or any other very prestigious university Um, and it also has a overwhelming reputation for being sort of posh white people who get in I think okay and there have been stories I can't remember and there are a few a couple of other drama schools in London that sort of share this reputation and I can't remember which one it was that she went to but uh, do you know the actor and writer Michaela Cole um no, she was in um, so. she she's um she's a black british actress she uh she wrote a series called chewing gum and most recently one called i may destroy you that was okay. very highly acclaimed and um she has talked about her sort of horror she got into one of these drama schools and she was sort of mm-hmm. one of the incredibly few non-white people and she's talked about how incredibly awful it was and how uh how like she talked about how one of the professors um in one of her acting classes would constantly pull her up for being aggressive in scenes oh and gosh when yeah. she just wasn't being and stuff like that so that's the kind of reputation i think that rada carries with it okay so that's and that is interesting and it, it probably i probably didn't pick up on this and i was reading it because of that if i had known that context um, later we'll be introduced to Damien's girlfriend, Grace, who had also gone to RADA, uh, and she was she was a black actor. And I think it kind of gets talked about in the book how she had gotten she had been gotten a scholarship to be able to go to the school, and it might have mm-hmm. been something to do with her ethnicity or her her race that helped her get that scholarship. So maybe that if I had been reading it with that context, I might have picked up on Anthony. Maybe had played into that a little more too. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that is connected because I do think there has been some effort by that kind of school in the last few years to improve their their reputation right. on that front, but right. that it's been done in a very sort of blunt way. Um, a bit like I think um, I've I've seen it reported the equivalent in some sports, like oh you know mm. why are there so few um, non-white rugby players in Britain and the solution is just to like throw scholarships at a few people right. and just consider like it done tokenism. rather than yeah, yeah rather than looking at what what are the structural reasons why we might not get many applications yes. from people from these backgrounds right. etc right yeah so that that probably I'm sure. I'm missing it, but I think that gets talked about. And so it is interesting that, yeah, it's the it's very well known. I think you're supposed to have that idea of, like, everyone knows this place. Mm. So so just to get... He, Damien went to Rada, and that's where he had gotten his big break. And it's it. this is one of those interesting things, if they kind of say all these movies that he's been in, where I had to go, was he actually in these movies? Is this a real person? I see, and no, right, right. it's totally fictional, but the movies are real. I see. So he he's been in Los Angeles and he doesn't arrive to in England after his mom for a week after his mom died. And so there's this talk of wow, he's such a great son. Like 
really, how much can you care if it took you that long to to book mm-hmm. a flight and get out here? So they go to visit him at his house in Brick Lane, which is that is that a real place? Yes, that's a real place. It's a quite famous neighborhood in East London, and it's particularly associated with the Jewish community there. So if you want to have okay. really good bagels, you would go to Brick Lane. <laughs> okay. So they he lives there and they do kind of insinuate that it's this it's this kind of nice neighborhood. And they t- they describe him as a prick. Like he's he's kind of he talks to his mom occasionally on the phone and email, but really she comes to water his plants for him and that's kind of mm-hmm the the important part about their relationship so he he just doesn't seem like a good person they kind of talk about that the accident and deal and this is where he's talking about how his mom hadn't stayed on the scene because she thought it would hurt hurt his reputation and he's kind of almost saying it as if it's a good thing like yeah she was just thinking of me like that's everyone would have done that when we can look at it and go no way yeah because i feel like if you thought if you thought that was a bad thing, I don't think you would tell investigators about that. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so that's quite a revealing thing about his character, I suppose, that he thinks it's a yes. positive thing that he should tell people about. I agree. Um, he also brings up, this is something new, he says that things didn't add up in the with the accident, and I don't agree with him that it didn't add up, but he does say the first witness on scene had disappeared. Like, they had had this call for the... Um, for the trial and this person who had like firsthand seen I think the only person to actually see the accident and been there first never showed up to the trial so he thinks that's weird and then he brings up the ice cream shop being closed and he's like it was closed like were they why were they really running across the street like that's kind of his take Mm. but you it's hard to take him seriously with his kind of his attitude towards things interesting yeah, and then Diana says, oh, sorry, not Diana, Damien says that Alan Godwin had been harassing his mother for money, so clearly she had told him about that as well. Uh, it had been a few weeks before the murder, which again, we kind of knew, and then his girlfriend comes in. So this is where we're introduced to Grace, who had also gone to Rada, and their daughter, Ashley. And so I think it kind of gets mentioned they had met at Rada when they had both been at school, in school there, but they hadn't started dating until a few years ago. They kind of mm-hmm. like met again at a, at a function. So this is where, kind of at, as I mentioned at the beginning, that Anthony is he's supposedly screenwriting for the movie Tintin 2 with um, <laughs> Steven Spielberg and some other famous person. And so he's gone to a meeting to meet to, to talk about this movie. And in the book, there's kind of a long description and it goes into all of it, but it's not super important. The important part is that Hawthorne interrupts the meeting. He somehow has found out where it's happening and tells Anthony that he has to leave because it's the funeral and Anthony has to come to the funeral to be able to write about it. <laughs> so, you know, Anthony is fuming that he's he's like, this is Steven Spielberg. And then the, the kicker is that the Tintin movie or Tintin 2 never actually ends up getting made. And so that's kind of funny to think about, because I wonder if, if that actually was talked about. Mm. Or I guess maybe the what other work has Anthony been, you know, hired for and then it doesn't happen. It constantly uh, astonishes me, the very little I know about sort of screenwriting and so on, is how anyone involved in that industry really gets anything done. Because it seems so <laughs> fluky whether 
like you write a script and then like nine years later they make it sort of thing how how do you ever get motivated to do anything when you know there's so little chance of it happening in that form or in the way that yeah. you expect you know yeah I've just looked it up I meant I should have done this before anyways um from an article from 2018 says Tintin 2 is still happening says Steven Spielberg so it's still <laughs> I look forward uh, to seeing that in now. 20 Yeah, I look forward to seeing that in 2035 or something. <laughs> so, so they end up going to the funeral. Anthony's super mad about it. And at the funeral, there's maybe they say maybe a couple dozen guests, really not a lot. It does not seem like day and I had that many friends. Um and one of the people they meet is Bruno Wang, who is another kind of what they say famous theater producer. And he clearly doesn't like Raymond Clunes, the other the theater director that Diana had been meeting with. Mm-hmm. And he kind of throws out there and suggests that Raymond Clunes is being investigated by the authorities for false claims about that production. So he's he's making it sound like it was it's even more serious than we had originally thought that Diana mm-hmm. just lost money. There's something more going on there, you know? Interesting. So they move on from him. There seems to be kind of during the ceremony, only one person seems to be like proper sad. And it's it's a tall man. He's kind of dabbing at his eyes with a, with a tissue. And so they read this Psalm 34. The poem Ariel by Sylvia Plath is read by Grace. Mm-hmm. Damon gives a super self-centered eulogy that's I I skipped over it even. I couldn't read it. It was so cringe. <laughs> if you can imagine. And then Eleanor Rigby is played. So exactly how Diana had wanted her how she planned, funeral to yeah. go. Right. How she planned a week ago, which is crazy. Um, Inspector Meadows is at the funeral. And this is, a, they kind of play into the quote unquote dumb inspector a little bit. And he says that the police are closing in on a burglar that's active in the area. And... Clearly, Hawthorne does not think this is the correct answer. He thinks it's bigger. And perfectly at this moment, they're lowering the coffin into the grave and a sound starts to play. And it's someone, Ooh. it's the recording, the wheels on the bus. And so some, it's coming from within the coffin. This song is oh. playing. The wheels on the bus go round and round, etc. And it just keeps so going. So weird. Very weird. And of course, everyone's looking at each other going, what is happening? This is awful. Like, who did this? They pull up the coffin, they, they get it back into the chapel and take it apart. And they find a, like, radio thing that you can record an MP3 on. Like, it's a radio alarm clock. So mm-hmm. you could set the time and then it would play whatever MP3 oh. is loaded onto it. Mm-hmm. Someone did it on purpose. That's really weird. Right. So, so as, as the coffin had been pulled up and taken away, Damien kind of turns to Grace. He's clearly very upset about this like even more so than you might have thought because he didn't again he didn't he seemed to be so self-centered like does he like you can't tell how much he really cares about his mother and he tells grace you handle the um the ser- like what the ceremony or whatever after this the wake i guess is what it's called mm-hmm. and i'm going home and he leaves that seems it seems such an odd choice of um if, if it's meant to be a a threat or a what would you say if it was meant to like make fun of the funeral? Yeah, like a practical like joke a really... or something. Yeah, seems like an odd choice of song. So suggests that it is supposed to be meaningful to somebody. 
Right. Yeah. That's, I guess, that is, that is uh, the thought of why this song. It's very weird. Mm. So they've found this alarm clock. It's Irene Laws, who is the secretary from the Cornwallis funeral home. And it turns out Cornwallis had actually, he had left shortly, like right after the ceremony. Um, so Irene is in charge and she kind of is describing them, ha- describing to them that the casket had only been left in the car for about five minutes unattended, like the car unlocked. And so she's kind of saying there, that would have been the only window where someone could have tampered with it. Mm. But it did have this period of time. Like it wasn't, it wasn't attended the entire time. Is there any opportunity that someone involved in the actual funeral process? So like someone who works at the funeral home could have done it? Probably. Or is that the only opportunity? Or is it is it just um, this window in the car? It, no, and they do say there's... I guess how it works is they she hadn't had a viewing, or she in her... Diane hadn't planned to have a viewing of her body, I guess. I'm not mm-hmm. sure how that gets worked out. But you did have... People do have an opportunity in the week leading up to the funeral to go pay their respects. And there so there was a, um, a building... So it was the idea of it could have been tampered with then, but they then say that there's a registry you have to sign in and no one had signed in. So no one had gone to visit her, Just again, kind of sad. Mm-hmm. But I think they do ask about the um, pallbearers who would have been in charge of the casket. And it's a kind of a family business. So they're all somehow related to each other. But theoretically, mm-hmm. yes, there would have been opportunity for someone involved in the uh, with the funeral home. Um, to be to be alone with the casket so from there they they catch up with grace the girlfriend who's kind of taken charge of the wake and she's obviously super weirded out by this like she doesn't know this is her boyfriend's mother she doesn't know any of these people yeah that is odd behavior by him actually i should note that yeah it's super weird and she thinks it's weird too and she kind of says she she has an idea of why Damien was so upset about this song, why he left. And she says that the song was played at the boy's funeral who had died from that accident in Deal. Oh, okay. Because it had been, it had been that child's favorite song. And so his parents had played it. I guess, I guess so. That it, it just seems like a strange, strange song to pick. But yeah, I guess if a child liked it, you would. I agree. And, and so it's kind of the, would it actually get on Damien's, under Damien's skin or was it more someone who hated Diana and just wanted to like ruin her funeral even though like even though she's dead like I guess maybe if the spirits are watching like that kind of idea just to give her the finger a little bit Hmm. um but again it's just being noted and the look for more information they then talk to uh Diana's lawyer whose name is Kenworthy and he actually is also on the board for the Globe Theatre. And I, I'm not sure if we knew this already or if it's coming up now. On the day that Diana had died or was murdered, she had actually just resigned from the Globe Theatre. Oh, right. And okay. so there... I didn't know that. Okay, yeah. So that that comes up and they're, they're now wondering, why did she resign? Was there a fight going on? They're kind of asking Kenworthy and he doesn't think so. He thinks it was on good terms. Like she had just... She had been there for six years or something. Like it kind of was, she was approaching the end of her term. If not that they have terms, but she had been there long enough that she maybe thought it was time for someone else to take over. Mm-hmm. They are thinking about 
the fact that Cornwallis had thought he had overheard a fight, and so they're wondering, was there a disagreement with someone? Or was it with Raymond Clunes? Um, they ask the lawyer about the will, and he says it was pretty straightforward. Diana had left everything to her son, Damien. And then Kenworthy gives his wife the car keys and says that she should drive. And as he's doing that, suddenly Hawthorne has this realization, kind of freaks out. And he, he, he says, we need to get to Damien's house as soon as possible. Like we need, we, we need to move. We need to go. And so I'll, I'll stop here just to say, do you have any idea what, what Hawthorne's realization could be that's related to Kenworthy giving his wife the car keys? Um, I don't know what the significance of the car keys would be, but I just from a formulaic perspective, I'm wondering, <laughs> is Damien in danger? Is that what if is that what he's realized? Because it mm. seems like about now is when a second body might show up. Right. It's 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 time enough. Yeah, and he's obviously behaving oddly, like something that has happened at the funeral, whether it's the weird music or something else has made him behave out of not as would be expected from someone who's essentially running his mother's funeral and that makes me wonder if like there's going to be some incident or confrontation right well so they get to the house they make it it's a ton of traffic but they get there and the front door is ajar and they walk in and there's a overwhelming smell of blood so oh no you are right exactly that there's it's time for the second body so Anthony faints, <laughs> being a <laughs> being a writer and not used to this. And uh, Hawthorne, as he's fainted, has gone to kind of secure the premises. And Hawthorne's super mad that he he missed this kind of piece of information. And so it I missed it as well. I'll I'll be honest. I had no idea what was happening. What was with the keys? But at mm. the beginning. When they're going through the crime scene, Anthony notes that there had been a fish-shaped keyring with five hooks and only four keys. Oh, I see. And is this the fifth key? So they're kind of, Hawthorne is saying, of course, she came to, Diana would help her son Damien and she'd water his plants for him while he's gone. So of course she had to have a key to the house in Brick Lane. And that key would have been on her key, key ring where she labeled all the keys. And so the killer must have taken the key when he was in. Diana's uh, house. I see. So the car key thing was just because it made him think of there's a key missing somewhere. Yes. Yeah. I it see. was not car keys. It was it was just the keys was the key. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't mean that like that. But pun. <laughs> um, I I would say if I was writing feedback for Anthony Horowitz on this book, I would say mm, not an A star revelation. <laughs> like it seems a bit of a stretch. <laughs> I agree. Would you really pick that up from someone saying that? Yeah. So there is a little more information in the book, and it would have been when they were interviewing Damien before, and he had made that comment about the plants. Hawthorne had felt like he was on the verge of realizing something, and he I didn't tell you this because, again, I have to cut something out. (laughs) He had been on the verge of realizing something when Anthony had asked a question to Damien, and then Hawthorne, after the interview, had gotten so mad at Anthony for asking questions he's like you you interrupted my train of thought now i've missed something and i don't know what it is i see yes and which is a relatable feeling i think we've all had that where you're sort definitely of like on the edge of remembering something and then something else interrupts you and then it's gone the chain the train of thought exactly you can't yes. resurrect it 
all every day probably <laughs> yes <laughs> so it's it's that kind of it it's it wasn't just the car keys the the thought had been there before and it was kind of just mm-hmm. the car keys bringing it back to his mind i see i still think something fish related would have been better oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> but anyway <laughs> i'll write Ryan. to Anthony horowitz privately about that <laughs> Tell him he's not quite Agatha Christie yet. <laughs> so, so of course, this is a full... The police arrive, and this quickly becomes a full-blown crime scene. And this is something you don't see in, I would say, golden age of detective fiction books, but they have to stay there for basically the, the entire day because they can't leave until the police investigation finishes because they're kind of part of it right. now. Of course, yes. Well, that that's a nice touch, actually, because I th- I do think that a lot of crime novels, whether whenever they're from, do make everything happen probably a lot faster than yes. it does in real life. Right, exactly. So, so Hawthorne's kind of describing. He thinks Damien was lured from the funeral with that mm-hmm. song. So now, now that we've seen this play yeah. out, he's like, okay, that song has to mean something that we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so as they're leaving, Grace pulls up in a taxi, and her reaction seems rehearsed. Anthony describes it almost as if she had seen that something was going, there was a crime scene outside her house, and she had told the cab driver to drive around several times while she figured out how she wanted to react. Okay. Um, which is fair, like she is an actor, so that kind of plays into it, but they're more saying, doesn't look like there's a lot of love lost between Damien and Grace. And I ha- again, because you're not reading this, you haven't picked up on it, but I will say you can see feel that tension. It doesn't seem, it seems like they might be together because of this pregnancy. This daughter, mm-hmm. Ashley, is more how it's described. Like, right. they're not married, they're just dating. They live together, they whatever, whatever, but it's, it's more for show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they go to visit. So as as we kind of noted, Irene Laws had taken charge of the situation because Mr. Cornwallis had left the ceremony earlier. And it turns out he, he kind of is, it does. And he's super apologetic about it. He feels awful. He's kind of saying, I would never do this, but my son, uh, it was his school play. And I had told him I wouldn't miss it. And I, re- I thought Irene Laws would be fine in charge of things. So they go to visit him because they want to know more information about who could have, was there any more time when someone could have tampered with the casket. Mm-hmm. Did, did he actually go to the play? Uh, yes, there seems to be okay. no no reason to suspect otherwise. Okay. And he does have kids. They they notice that very quickly when they walk into the house because it's <laughs> a complete mess. It's... <laughs> <laughs> there are things everywhere and toys, books, clothes... <laughs> No surface is left untouched. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he, they're kind of talking about his son. His son loves acting, like that's his passion. And so that it, the reason the school play had been so important is that it wasn't just any old soccer game. Like this was mm-hmm. what his son loved. And he is shocked about the news of the murder. And he he agrees that the alarm clock must have a connection. He's also very upset about the alarm clock because now like it just makes their business look bad like he's mm. gonna have to repair that kind of um that image of of what's going on he feels like this wouldn't have happened if he had been there which isn't necessarily true but I, that's another feeling i think everyone can relate to of 
it's hard to not put blame on yourself if you're technically in charge. Yeah. And so he does think that the most likely time would be that what Irene Laws had said, those five minutes where the coffin was in the hearse and the hearse was left unattended and unlocked. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he points to the same things of they have a, fa- they don't, they have their funeral home, but they don't do the work there. He would have been working on the body, embalming it at, they have another facility technically there, but he would have noticed, or Irene would have noticed when they were putting it into the coffin. Mm-hmm. Cornwallis, before, before they leave, he kind of remembers something and he says he had gotten a call a few days ago asking about the funeral, it was someone asking about the funeral, where it was going to be, what time, that kind of thing. But the person had refused to give their name, which he had found strange. And of course, Hawthorne kind of agrees, but he had the phone number because it was on record. And so he writes it down for Hawthorne. And as they're leaving the house, Anthony shows, or sorry, Hawthorne shows Anthony that it was the same phone number that Judith Godwin had given of her husband's phone number. So it's this is Alan Godwin's number. Okay, the one who had supposedly been harassing Diana. Correct. And yeah. possibly blackmailing her, yeah. Possibly, yeah. So he, clearly an interview is is needed with Alan Godwin, but that, mm-hmm. they'll get to that. So Anthony has a, a meeting with his literary agent, and she's mildly upset about him taking on this book idea without consulting, <laughs> consulting <Yes>. her. <laughs> but I think... It, it takes some convincing, but she she says she'll she'll work it out, basically. Because mm-hmm. I, th- I don't think she necessarily has control over him. He can write whatever he wants, and she just has to try and make money from it. Mm-hmm. So he meets, Anthony goes to meet with Hawthorne at Allen's work. He works, I think, kind of downtown London. I think on, on the way, or maybe as they're sitting in the waiting room, Hawthorne mentions that Raymond Clunes has been arrested. So again, that investigation, more serious than initially discussed. And that was in terms of, I think, I think the arrest was made because he was giving false claims about the theater production. And so taking money from people on false, um, false claims. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they go into the office and they both immediately recognize Alan as that man who was crying at the funeral. And so that's super weird. And they they also recognize and no, uh, they noticed that at the time, but that he had left as soon as the radio alarm clock had started playing. Mm-hmm. So he does admit, he admits to going to Diana's house and begging for money. He basically says, my business is failing. My marriage is failing. We have to sell the house because my business is failing. I thought she would have some kindness in her heart to help us out, seeing as she kind of caused this to some degree. Mm-hmm. And um, he also admits to sending the letter, but kind of says, why would he want to kill Damien? So at this point, I think that's that's what's going on. It's like Diana, maybe, but he's saying Damien had nothing to do with this. Sure, Diana went home to talk to him afterwards, but Damien didn't make that decision. Diana did. Like, I was mad at her. I wasn't mad at him. Right. Which seems plausible and honest. Sure. Yeah, exactly. So don't get too much out, out of him. I think he kicks him out of his office at some point. The He does admit to that the song had been played at his funeral, uh, at his son's funeral. And so mm-hmm. he was he was upset about it. And so that's why he had left. Yeah. I don't think it's explained why he went to Diana's funeral. I think he might say he was he was happy to see her. Like he, he wanted he wanted to see it as like a 
not a way to cope, but you know, closure. He had gone, he had right, gone yeah. hoping for closure, and did not get it. Uh huh. Yeah, that seems to make sense. Yeah. So Anthony at this point kind of goes off on his own, and this is where we get him interviewing Meadows, the police inspector. And through the interview, he learns a little bit more about Hawthorne's personal life. I'm kind of leaving that those parts out of the story. It's, I think, it's it's being described as a way um, to develop Hawthorne's character for future books. Uh, I see, it but doesn't it's relate to this plot so much. No, not so much. It's kind of it's its own thing. Um, but they do talk about. It's basically the idea that no one liked him because he was just really hard to work with. He kind of went mm. off and did his own things, which is again kind of that Poirot Sherlock Holmes character of. They, the, the the detective, they already know everyone else is in the way. Yeah, the the classic irritable genius, you know. Yes, yes, and so of course, of course, that type of person is hard to work with. But the real reason he had not been fired for that, it was they had a um, someone who they thought was a pedophile. They were interviewing him to try and get information, and they were bringing him down to the interview room that was in the basement. And Hawthorne had insisted that the man have handcuffs on while they were going down the stairs. And the man had fallen down the stairs and said that Hawthorne tripped him. Hawthorne said he had just fallen and there was that kind of, he said, she said, except it's he said, he said, no one knows who technically to believe. And so to eliminate, not to eliminate, but to help with the scandal, Hawthorne had been fired. I see. So that's why the allusion to the stairs earlier. Yes, exactly. And so I wonder, that never gets brought up again. I wonder if that's in future stories with this character. We get some more information mm-hmm. on did that, what actually happened, but it's not talked about again. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so the next day, Anthony and Hawthorne are taking a train out to Canterbury? Canter- Canterbury? Canterbury, yeah. Which Canterbury. Is, um, which is actually really, that's really near where my parents live. Okay. <laughs> so you went to school near Kent and your parents live near Canterbury. Mm-hmm. No one steal my identity. <laughs> <laughs> so they're going, they're going out there to visit the judge, um, Nigel Weston, who had been in charge of Diana's hit, like hit and run case. And Anthony is feeling kind of smug here because he has reviewed his case notes and he feels like he has an idea of what has happened and he thinks he knows who did it. And so he's kind of presenting this to Hawthorne and he's saying, I think it's Alan Godwin and here's why. And so he presents, actually, here, I'll leave it at that. Do you want to maybe take a guess at why he thinks that? Why he thinks it's Alan Godwin. So um, I'll get all one more thing. He thinks it's Alan Godwin, and it has something to do with um, Diana's vision and wearing glasses. Ooh, kind of. He's he's read he's been reading about it, reading his notes. He's going back over them. Yeah. No, I don't think anything occurs. I think I would say that for me, Alan Godwin is a likely suspect mostly because of his opportunities on both crimes. Mm, okay. You know, he's from what you said anyway. He he's been left. Um, unaccounted for so like he left the funeral right when Damien did so he could have gone around to Damien's house and killed right. him etc right. etc so he's that kind of suspect um, mm-hmm. rather than yeah but I'm, I'm intrigued tell me about the glasses <laughs> so I, I I don't think I 
again, it's a long book. I'm cutting a lot of stuff out. So I don't think I properly alluded to what I think Anthony did in the book because I did also have this thought. And so when, when, um, when Anthony has the thought, I know it can't be true because he has the Watson <laughs> demeanor. And so it has to be false. But I, he did do a good job of making me feel like that I had figured it out, which I hadn't. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Anthony thinks that it wasn't Diana driving the car. It was Damien because no one had seen uh, the driver. I see. Right. And that she took the blame because of his career. Exactly. And so that's really why she had gone home is because she was going to, she was going to take this blame and that the whole glasses thing was they had used that as a prop as to say of why she why she wouldn't have seen these kids. But in reality, it was she wasn't even in the car, so mm-hmm. she wouldn't have her glasses. And so that's his theory. And he's he's kind of thought about this. He, he's pretty sure he knows that it's Alan. And Hawthorne shoots this down immediately, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's kind of to the degree of there were a lot of witnesses they had seen the driver um they had confirmed that she had left her glasses at the golf club that she was driving home from uh her vision was that poor she couldn't see that far in front of her so it's like that added up like just a cup and there he, she, he's kind of saying the police would have looked into this like they would have known mm-hmm. that it wasn't damien in the car that maybe damien had an alibi or whatever so it's not it Right. So, so they've been on the train. That's That was Anthony's theory. Hawthorne's shot it down. And they arrive at Weston's house, the judge's house. And he basically, he basically says Diana wasn't to blame. Like, and she, that's, she had been found not guilty. But he's kind of saying, you can't, you can't base these cases off, off of morals. Like, I agree. She did a terrible thing. She should have been mm. wearing her glasses. Like, it is ridiculous. But the law stated that she didn't need to be wearing her glasses and we have to go based on law. Otherwise, we're compromising our, our profession. I see. Yeah. So it introduces an interesting theme about blind justice, I suppose. Right. Yes. And it, it goes back into people's people's opinions about things because Hawthorne is clearly very upset. He does not agree with the judge. He thinks that Diana should have been convicted or you can you can kind of get that sense from his the way he's asking mm. these questions but but the judge is is confident no i made the right decision she she wasn't doing anything illegal she was in the right and i agree it's very sad but that's how it has to be yeah it's very matter of fact and then then Hawthorne brings back up if you'll remember raymond clunes had said that he was kind of friends with the judge they had both the, the mm-hmm. judge and diana had been investors and so Hawthorne accuses him of letting her off because he was friends with Raymond Clunes and because he was friends with, he even goes as far to say you were friends with Diana. I see, right. Yeah. And Weston denies all of this. He's he's genuinely very upset and kicks them out of the house because he's he finds these kind of statements so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's still the insinuation there, but there's there's no definitive answer we're not we're just not sure Mm -hmm. so from there maybe i don't know if they're in the area or not but they go to deal Uh, maybe they take another train and they first visit diana's old house and so hawthorne had stolen that key from the crime scene originally so he has (laughs) he has the key and it's not a house key it ends up being a key to the garden Mm mm-hmm and they find that the 
garden had a fountain that was left in memory of her husband. And so they're just kind of pointing out that that's why it was there. She's She was visiting her kind of husband's, not grave, but his memorial. Okay. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So then they go to the accident site, because again, they're very close to each other. And they first talk to the ice cream shop owner who had been, she was the same owner as 10 years ago. And she says that she had been in the store. They were closed, but it was because a pipe had burst on the floor above. And so all their inventory had been ruined. And of course, they were closed to fix that. And so she had been around just managing that kind of thing when she'd heard the accident. And this is... As they interview all these people, this is where you get the opinions of... So she's on the side of the family saying, this woman was ridiculous. It's ridiculous that she got let off, etc. And that just the whole situation was very sad. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then they go next door to the pharmacy. And this guy says he remembers it like it was yesterday. Because it was just so... Again, so sad. Like two young boys. And he mentions that witness who had disappeared that Damien had brought up. Of course, yes. So it does. It is coming back, and he says that the this mystery man had been a customer and had actually just left the store when the accident had occurred, and it was right out front. So he's kind of saying this guy would have seen everything, like he would have been right there. Yeah. And then he kind of goes, "It was. It was so. He had run out afterwards to see this, and so he had seen he he had seen the kids and lying and the." The nanny, I think, had been missed by the car by inches. So she was kneeling by the the boy that was still alive. And uh, he goes, the boy had called out, like, daddy, which is so sad. Oh, no. Um, And so that's, I think, why it's kind of stuck with him in his memory. And then finally, they go to see the hotel where, where the nanny and the boys had been staying. And that woman remembers Diana, because Diana had lived there and had come to the hotel for dinner at the restaurant and she kind of says mary had had wanted to change rooms she had wanted a room with more of like a seaside view but the only one was um it was two connecting rooms and she wasn't allowed she couldn't be allowed to stay in a room have the boys stay in a separate room like they had to have an adult kind of supervisor mm-hmm. and this woman is more on the side of of course it wasn't diana's fault like that's the law that kind of thing like the boys shouldn't have run out into the road it's it was on them so there's mm. again more of this like yeah difference in opinion really i suppose yeah and that that's a, an interesting element for a mystery story isn't it where you know there's never going to be a resolution to that right it's, yes no yeah. So the next day, Hawthorne calls up to say that he wants to use Anthony's house for a meeting. And so when Hawthorne arrives at the Anthony agrees kind of unwillingly but says he'll do it. So Hawthorne gets there and announces that the cat, Mr. Tibbs, was found in a neighbor's house. It had been on the roof and fallen in through a skylight, and the neighbors had been on vacation, so they hadn't been home to find the cat mm-hmm. until... I, I can't... They don't say... It sounds like the cat lived, but I'm not sure how in this yeah. house. It, okay. it, that's not just explained, but the, 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 the cat lived. And then... Hawthorne says something interesting, which is, I think, important. He says, Mr. Tibbs, the name of the cat, is the reason everything happened. Diana might not have died. Hmm. So he thinks that's important, which is, I, it's just interesting. 
at this point in the book, I had no idea why when I was reading it. Yeah. So the cat... Let me get this right on the cat. So the cat was not stolen by Alan Godwin. No. It it would it had gone missing of its own accord and fallen into the neighbor's house. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, it just would have been around the same time when, when Alan had sent that letter. Mm-hmm. So I this is kind of a, a a side thing, but do you want to guess who Hawthorne wants to come over to Anthony's house for a meeting? There's two people. Is it Grace? And someone else? Grace and I'm, Grace and someone else? And Ashley, think? maybe? Oh, okay. Her daughter. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how young she is, so that might not make sense. Um she's she's maybe about two, four. Okay, so between. yeah, probably not her then. <laughs> they are they are from separate households. They're not they're not related. Oh, okay. So maybe um no, you said Raymond was being investigated for something. Yes, he's been arrested. Okay, so I assume him. means he's in jail. But I, you know, the way things work, maybe he's rich enough that he doesn't have to stay. I'm That's not more sure. Of a comment I w- on society. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would guess, I would guess Grace and then someone else involved in the theater somehow. Okay. But I, I don't know. I feel like the theater is important. Okay. okay. I, I think that's a good guess. This it's it's kind of a different story though. It ends up being Alan Godwin shows up and then Mary O'Brien. Mary being the oh, nanny I see. of So it's from that of side the of the story. Yes. And so it turns out that they were lovers. And so this is where a lot of Hawthorne starts to describe a lot of the story and a lot of things are kind of starting to to fall into place. Right. To, to a degree. <laughs> to mm-hmm. a degree. Do you want to kind of take any guesses on how, now that you know their lovers, maybe how that plays out a little bit? Was Or what are you is, thinking is, about that? Well, is it to do with how, um, how, why the children, did did she, for instance, tell the children to run across the street to get ice cream so she could have a minute alone with their dad, even uh, though she knew the shop yeah. was closed or something like that? Mm-hmm. It's, so it is, it's kind of close to that, but it's, it's worse in a way. It's sadder. It turns out that Aunt, uh, Alan Godwin had been leaving. He was the mystery man leaving the the pharmacy. And his uh, boys had seen him and so run across the road to say hi to him because their dad, they're not, dad's not supposed to be here. Like, this is exciting. And so he was, he kind of caused the accident in, in part, not uh, really, but in part. Because and he, they normally and he wouldn't run across the because, road, but they saw the dad. And he was there because he was there to see her in secret. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you're right. That is even sadder. Yeah, yeah, and so that's why they had, they had, he didn't show up, or he he should have gone to. He, he just watched his kid die, and he didn't go to be with them. He had left because he was worried his wife would find out about their affair. Yeah, that's horrible. So Hawthorne's kind of pointing out to Anthony because it's kind of like Anthony's, Alan and Mary know what's going on. Hawthorne knows what's going on, and Anthony's in mm. the dark. <laughs> Uh, he's pointing out to him that Alan never blamed Diana or Damien. He blamed himself. And so that's kind of, and, and they think that Judith probably su- suspected something. And it's also why Mary had stayed helping with the family for 10 years after the accident, because she felt this guilt as well. Yes. That it had been partly her fault. And so that kind of plays into why why everything with this family has gone is going so even worse than it maybe could have because it's mm-hmm. it's this extra layer of terrible. 
okay, yeah, that that seems to wrap up that side of things. Right. Um, so Hawthorne's kind of saying neither of these people are really suspects because neither of them blamed Diana. Yes, and that, um, yeah, I suppose that um, resolves the matter of Alan Godwin being a threatening presence in Diana's life because he wasn't really. Right. Yeah, he had just been kind of at his wits end for, he, he really did need money. And I guess he kind of describes when you're that desperate, you'll kind of do anything. Mm. Which would, it could play into murder, but for him it was just this kind of groveling for money and sending the letter. Yeah. Uh, so it is, It's. I think it's interesting and it's good you brought up Grace because the they go to see her the next day. So they do kind of mm-hmm. want to talk to her more and see, kind of as you're saying, it's like this other side to the story. There's like these different storylines going on. And she is staying with her parents at her parents' house, um, maybe just outside of London. And she she kind of explains her whole story about going to Rada and how she had been, it, she goes into a lot of detail about everything and how she had been friends with Damien Cowper, Amanda Lay, and Dan Roberts. The four of them had been this close, like this clique, and there had been, everyone had their own clique, and that's how it had kind of worked. And that Damien was a great actor. He had been super confident and that all the teachers had loved him. Like they had really given him kind of more attention to a degree. Mm. And she describes how in their third year, their final year, it was the, that was when everyone was trying to get agents. And she describes it as, as, you know, the teachers were trying to be fair. And so, so Damien had been the lead in some production. And so when they, they were going to put on Hamlet, it, it made sense that Damien wasn't going to be the lead. Someone else was going to take it. Mm-hmm. And I, <laughs> I can't, t- it doesn't sound to me like that's actually what would happen. I feel like she's describing this almost from um like she doesn't maybe know i i don't know what do you think about about that kind of a school about whether they would try and be fair like that no i agree with you i don't think they would be trying (laughs) to give everyone a fair showing or anything no Um, right i also think so the there is such a thing i had a friend who after university went on to drama school so i got to see a little bit he didn't go to rada but he went to a drama school in london and the way it seemed to work was that at the end of the year there was what they called the student showcase and Mm -hmm. it's so they for this very reason they don't do a whole play because obviously there'll only be parts for certain people types of people Uh, and that kind of thing they rather do like a succession of scenes from a load of different plays so that everyone gets a chance to do the thing that they're good at and then they invite loads of right agents and other people from the industry and it it i do remember it being very much a pressured thing of like if you didn't get an agent after the showcase then your life was over kind of thing but yeah it wasn't right. like they did the whole the whole of hamlet for this purpose right so so that's kind of that's the same idea that grace is conveying of like getting an agent was so important and i don't think hamlet was the only thing they maybe more to what you're talking about i think there had been showcases and agents Mm. had been there so this wasn't the only opportunity but it was the biggest because yeah it's a play yeah you're if you're hamlet you're in the whole show (laughs) yeah uh so the the she talks about the the casts the cast list coming out and so dan her like and she's kind of just going through her friends dan had gotten hamlet grace herself had gotten ophelia so she had gotten a major role uh damien was laertes 
Mm-hmm. And Amanda had also been a, a a character. I didn't write her name down, I'm not, uh, but she had been of a similar l- level of character of only appearing in kind of like the ending scenes. Mm-hmm. And she kind of says that what this is she's describing all of this because she's saying this is what changed her life was that Dan had gotten glandular fever and so Damien had had to step up to take take uh... over the role of Hamlet and playing being Ophelia with with Damien as Hamlet had kind of built their connection together if mm-hmm. that makes sense uh, and she'd really seen him I think she that's when she'd fallen in love with him is how she's describing it and more fallen in love with him as an actor maybe than him as a person I see yeah because Hamlet and Ophelia is not a super romantic story <laughs> yeah I can see how, yeah, on a personal level, the actors would spend a lot of time together and stuff. But yeah, just <laughs> on a character level, it's not. Yes. You wouldn't fall in love over that. No, I think it was exactly. It was more the, the amount of time they spent together and watching him act at such close proximity, mm. maybe. Uh, this whole time that she's describing this, her dad is sitting in the room and basically like bad mouthing Damien. Like he did not like Damien <laughs> at all. Uh, so it was. So sorry, she, let me get. So it was this this other friend Dan who was meant to be Hamlet, but he got sick. Yes, and that's yeah, why Damien got, got the part. We've not met yeah. Dan before, have we? This is the first time we've met them. No, we're just this yeah. whole this whole friend group that she's ta- uh, Dan and Amanda. We have not met. So she had fallen in love with him. They had met however many years later. She ended up getting pregnant with Ashley, and so she had moved to LA to be with Damien. And mm-hmm. apparently, he was super excited about his daughter I can't tell if that's true or not so Hawthorne brings up the will which that's definitely a cliche in detective novels and Grace has heard about the will and he points out Damien had taken out a life insurance policy six months ago and you'll make at least a million dollars just from that plus you're gonna get the house in Brick Lane you get the house in LA and kind of whatever else is around. I don't think Damien had that much money, like actual cash of his own, though. Right, but because he, uh, Diana died before him, I think then that's true. No, that you're so right. I forgot about that. Way, that. Yeah, yep. yeah. So even more money. That comes up a lot in detective novels about you know who died before who. Correct. Yeah. Yep. So exactly that. So you're kind of saying you're set to inherit a lot of money, and then then uh, Hawthorne points out. You actually arrived in England a week before Damien did, and a, just a day before Diana died. Mm-hmm. So he's done, he's done his research, he knows this, and she's defending herself. Um, her dad says he'll s- swear that Grace was in the house during when whenever Diana had died. So there's just a little bit of a tough tussle there. And then Grace brings up, she had, she had kind of left Amanda aside for a little bit. She said she had one more thing to say about her. Um, Amanda had been, Amanda and Damien were dating at the time. And so that's, I don't, I think they had broken up maybe in the last year is what she's saying. And so that's also Mm -hmm. how she had kind of fallen in love with Damien. Um, But she had seen Amanda had been uh, making out with Dan. So she thinks that like they had broken up in there at the end of their year. Mm -hmm. And that about maybe six years ago, Amanda had disappeared and no one knows what happened to her. And so they, oh. they read the news article and sure enough, they think she had gone on a like Tinder date basically and had disappeared. Okay. Huh. 
Okay. It's always when something like that's revealed, you immediately think like, what characters in this book have I already met who might be Amanda in a different version? Sure, yeah. Yeah. There, There is some talk about, so her name's Amanda Lay. I, don't, I didn't look into this too much, but there, uh, they do mention that she, they think maybe she had, she, she was in love with an actor and so it might not have been her real name. Like Grace, ah, okay. Grace said that there was a rumor about that, that she had taken on a stage name. Mm-hmm. So they they leave there, and as they're leaving, Hawthorne gets a call that Nigel Weston's house has been set on fire, and oh he gets all kind of mad and says it's all Anthony's fault and leaves. Yeah. <laughs> I don't quite yeah. see how it's Anthony's fault, but sure. Oh, well, a- Anthony says the same thing, and as I've as while well, I was reading it, I was going, "What? What did Anthony do?" There's nothing that he talked about that makes it sound like he could be. He wasn't. He was with Hawthorne this whole time. Mm. So I'm gonna pause here to allow you to kind of talk through everything. There's there's one more chapter that I'll I'll read before kind of asking you for your final opinion. But I think here's a good point to just. Uh, let you kind of think through or talk through how you're how you're how you're thinking or feeling. Um, so my main thought is that I think Anthony Horowitz has done a good job in this book of the the kind of classic mode of writing a murder mystery, which is to keep about three possible solutions in play for as long as possible yes yes before you yeah. start before you reveal that oh no actually it can't have been that so the <laughs> the whole thing with the the hit and run seems like a very good example of that is right. that that would that would be a totally plausible ending to the book if it turned out that the nanny or the father or both had done it somehow right but actually not for equally plausible reasons he's turned turned that storyline in a different direction and then ditto so I think if that one's already resolved satisfactorily then for me the main other aspect of this is the I feel like theatre is important like theatre keeps coming up in lots of different ways Um, obviously Damien having been an actor and his and Grace's friends there seem to be some mysteries there then also the fact that diana was involved in the theater via the globe and also with this now dodgy raymond guy um i feel like there's something something in there like someone's got some resentment or or something in that world that hasn't right. come out yet right that's as far as i've got um okay and then I think possibly you get this more, as you said, if you actually read the book. Um, but the sort of Anthony Haw- Hawthorne dynamic is interesting <laughs> to me because I think it's a it's it's a novel idea to me having the author insert himself as a character in his own work. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Totally. It's very as a Watson. I, I think that's really interesting and uh, yeah I would be I'd be interested to read one of these books just to just to experience that I think. I think I think there are maybe I'm wrong but I think this is the first and I think there's two more in this series. So definitely okay. yeah check it out. <laughs> mm. There's so there's the one line of thinking of it's with theater. Do you think were you thinking there's another there's the line with the uh with the deal and the car. Do you think there's another one or you think it's just the two? I think it's just the two, um, unless I've missed something really obvious. I can't think of another angle I, on I, the case. I'm only asking that because oh, you had, oh, no, you had no, talked no, about sorry. Grace before. About Grace? 
you, you had thought that she was going to be the visitor. And so I was thinking maybe you were thinking something oh, about her. That was because I thought maybe she had something to share about the the theatrical world. Ah, uh, okay. And okay. They're, they're sort of friends. But I've just realised I'm wrong. There is another, there is a third angle to this, which is the funeral home. And oh, okay. that whole thread of, um, you know, her going to set up the funeral before on the day that she died which seems like a coincidence that would happen only in a murder mystery and then the weird stuff at the funeral with the alarm clock in the coffin and so on right it's kind of it's right at the beginning that whole thing yeah and so if um if the alan godwin guy who seemed to me the most likely to have put the recording in the coffin as a way of Mm -hmm. if 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 he's out of the picture and he didn't do that then my mind then turns to well someone at the funeral home someone involved in the actual process of organizing the funeral is not just you know how someone can quite legitimately be two people in a book like you can meet them in one guise and then actually it turns out that oh under their married name they were known as this or like as you say like an actor with a stage name and they have a different name so yeah you can perfectly be another person yeah so it's not like they're hiding anything you just know them Mm -hmm. by two different names in two different situations so yeah some i wonder if that's like someone at the funeral home is someone that we've already also met in a different way or something like that i don't know i see but anyway yeah so those are my those are my two two threads i would pull one is the funeral home and one is the the actor people okay i like it so I'll give you, there's there's this one last chapter and then it's kind of revealed. So Anthony kind of sits down at a coffee shop and thinks of the case because Hawthorne's just left him to deal with the fire. He said it was his fault. He's wondering about that. Oh, I have no idea, by the way, about the fire. The fire is a mystery to me. <laughs> so he's, he, same thing there, same thing with Anthony, not sure. He's wondering, is Amanda's disappearance important? Like this has just come up. Did it mean anything or is it, it's, it's a side story. He realizes that he knows a woman working for Rada at like she's a teacher there, and so he he wonders if he can have a meeting with her, and he's somehow able to get it on the spot. So he goes and sees her, and <laughs> she remembers <laughs> she remembers Damien. She had just started working during his second year, and she remembers not liking him. She thought that he was kind of cocky and very confident mm-hmm. and sure of himself. And the thing that she brings up is that in their second year, they had to do this kind of performance project where they brought in an object that held meaning to them or mattered to them. And Mm -hmm. he had brought in a toy bus and had played the song, The Wheels on the Bus Go Round and Round, as he said it was important because of this accident. And she had took it as being fake. Like she had felt like his performance was... He was just trying to find this thing that would seem like it had meaning, if that makes sense. Right, he was trying to use the accident to get kudos at drama school. Correct, yes. And that's the perfect word to use. He was using this experience to get him Mm -hmm. further. But that's interesting to me that he connected the song and the accident in that performance, which presumably would have been seen by Grace and the missing friend. And And friend, yeah they would have known about the connection between the two things. Sure, yeah. And and I think he played the song because it had been played at the funeral. Like, he didn't choose it. Mm-hmm. He had he had seen it, or he'd heard it already. 
And then Anthony asks if she, there were kind of no pictures online of Amanda. Um, so he's asking if she, if this teacher who works there has anything. And she finds a picture from their, I think from Hamlet, from their last showcase. And it's of Amanda and friends. And as he's looking in the picture, something clicks for Anthony. And he feels now that he's a step ahead of Hawthorne. Okay, so something he sees in that picture. So this makes me think that I am right somehow that one of those people is someone he's already met in another mm-hmm. guise in the case. Because what else could you learn from a photograph other than what somebody looks like? Right, yeah, sure. Would you like to take a kind of official guess, even if it's a stab in the dark at who you think the murderer is? Um. Okay, I will, but I feel really <laughs> stupid doing this because I'm pretty sure that I am wildly wrong because my guess is based entirely on something a recurring thing that happens in detective novels and not anything to do with this book. I think so that's my guess fine. You're playing that, on past experience. Is it the funeral director guy? Is it is it one of those stories where it's it's a backwards coincidence? It's not that she went to book her funeral and then she died that day Uh, it's uh because she went she went to the funeral home and then someone decided to kill her because of that if you know what i mean right it's like it's like the opposite of the coincidence you might be looking at yes exactly so like um it's not a coincidence at all it's actually someone it it, there is a cause and effect between the two incidents right Um, okay and I don't know what that is, but so the, so my entire guess is based on the fact that those are quite clever things to put in mystery novels, <laughs> and that therefore the only the only person who could really take advantage of that would be the funeral director guy, or right. someone else who works at his establishment, but less likely right. I think because they've not really featured. Okay. So yeah, that's I my guess. That, I think that's a great way of making a guess. Is what are other tropes or things kind of used in other books? Which I don't, I don't say because I think Anthony Horowitz is being very derivative or anything, or copying anyone else. I just think that there are only so many ways you can do these things. Yeah. Oh, totally. No, no, I get your meaning. Yeah. So anyway, that's my guess. <laughs> well, would you like to hear the solution now? Okay, go for it. Okay. So Anthony arrives at Cornwallis's office, and it's actually his. It's not the funeral home. It's where he prepares where he would be preparing the bodies or other funeral homes might prepare bodies as well. Cornwallis is the funeral home guy that um, Diana yes. saw. I forgot his name. Okay. Yes. Yeah, Mr. Cornwallis. And he offers him some coffee and they sit down to chat. And Anthony says that he had just recognized him in a, as a, in a photo as Dan Roberts. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Which you you might remember but probably not i did not remember cornwallis's full name is robert daniel cornwallis i did not remember any part of his name so that <laughs> <laughs> so that is good information fair uh and he anthony says to to him why didn't you tell us before that they, like that you knew damien and cornwallis goes didn't i like i'm pretty sure i mentioned that and anthony having recordings of all his interviews and you know taking notes was like no you definitely didn't and cornwallis says that they they keep talking and they're kind of discussing what had happened and what was going on and cornwallis says you know what like there's something i want to show you can you come into the other room and at this point anthony realizes that he can't move any part of his body he's stuck in the chair so he 
Cornwallis gives an evil smile is kind of how it's described in the book. And maybe he laughs a little bit and he brings in a wheelchair into the room and picks Anthony up and sets him into it. Still kind of, you know, he's smug. He's proud of himself for what he's done here. And he brings Anthony down to the basement of the building and he starts to tell Anthony his story about what has happened. And throughout this process, I'm not going to go into all the detail, but he stabs Anthony a few times with scalpels and leaves them hanging in his body, which is disgusting. So what did he give him to paralyze him? So we're not we're not sure at this point where it must be in the coffee because that's all he drank. And he so Anthony is kind of trying to stay conscious like he, he can't feel his body he can't move but he's able to still understand what is happening to him like his brain is still working and so so Dan um, Dan Mr. Cornwallis like both are technically what we could call him he describes how um you might remember that his he had gotten he had had glandular fever which is why he mm. couldn't perform in the play and that near the end of the year Grace had seen uh, Amanda, D- uh, Damien's girlfriend, and Dan kissing. And right. I would be interested, this is kind of something interesting to know. So glandular fever, also known as the kissing disease or mono, if you've heard of that. Yeah, one of my friends got glandular fever when we were at university. Um, it was very serious. Would you call it glandular fever? Yeah. And that's the important part is Dan knew that Damien and Amanda had you know, purposely gotten him sick so that he couldn't be Hamlet, so that Damien could be Hamlet. What, so Amanda had it and she went around snogging other people to give them it? She must have. That's not clear. They don't say Amanda had it at any point. So I, but she must have to have given it to him or he takes it as, and he could be wrong too. Like he, he's clearly, there's something not right with him if he's going around murdering people. Mm, So maybe he just thought that's what happened. Well, it just immediately my mind goes, well, why didn't Damien have it then? But Good good point. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, as you say, once you get to the kind of monologuing villain part of a book, it doesn't have to make that much sense. <laughs> yes. And that's so that's exactly what's going on. So he, he's kind of talking about the mono, he's saying, or a glandular fever, that Damien um, could have Hamlet, how terrible, like how mad this had made him. And he... He did get an agent, but it was not the agent that he wanted from this play. And so he'd gone on to to be in a couple of plays in England, but he, really nothing had come of it. He His acting mm-hmm. career had kind of gone south f- within, within a few years, and he had had to go back to the family business of funeral home directing, which he did not want at all. Right, I see. And he, even though this isn't really necessarily how life works. He has pinned it all back to this one moment where he didn't get to be in a play. Exactly. So he's he's fixated on it. He, um, four years after, after school, he had met back up with Amanda and killed her because he blamed her as well. So that's her oh, disappearance really okay. was, she, she was, she was killed. And he totally got away with that one because it, it was just down as a kind of petered out yep. missing person, right? Yep. And they kind of touch on that of he he says that he'd hidden parts of her body in his next seven burials. So it was that idea of him being a funeral director director yeah. gave him this access. Very gross, but And now I think about it, very suspicious profession. <laughs> so uh and so it's exactly what you said, the reverse coincidence. He had seen Damien's mom, Diana, come into his funeral home and he'd been fixated on ki- 
doing something like hurting Damien for all these years, but knew he couldn't get to him because he was, you know, in Hollywood, he had this entourage, like there's no way he could attack him without being stopped. Mm. And then Diana walks into his office and this plan forms in his mind about how if he kills Diana, the funeral will get Damien home and the like the funeral will be the perfect place where Damien won't be surrounded uh. by people. Right, so get another classic bit of misdirection in that Diana wasn't really a victim yes. in her own right. She was a right. means to an end. Right. I see. Exactly. So so he 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 gets to the end of his story kind of telling Anthony and Anthony tries to kind of plead with him to say, I like don't I'm just the writer, like I I didn't I didn't even know you did it. I just knew that you were Dan Roberts, like I hadn't even made the connection, mm-hmm. like you don't have to kill me. And Cornwallis goes, well, of course you have to die. I've told you this story now. And he <laughs> picks up another scalpel. And of course, the very last second, Hawthorne runs in and Cornwallis slits his own throat. Yeah. I am very sorry. It's hard to describe this. It's much better if you read it. But <laughs> uh, So, of course, Anthony describes this afterwards and says, you knew I was going to survive because I'm writing this book. Uh, so which is a little too bad <laughs> yes good point uh, but he has built up this suspense and then the the scalpel wounds are kind of pretty superficial so all he needs is stitches and it, it ends up being a date rape drug which is what he was drugged with right. I, I don't know the official term for that and uh, so he's in the hospital and Hawthorne and him start to talk about all the, all the details of the case mm-hmm and so it kind of, it, what it really ties back to is kind of what you were getting into and kind of what you were saying is it's almost like a trope in, in books to a degree, but that everyone had overlooked that original fact that Diana had planned her funeral and that same day she had died. That can't be coincidence. It can be, but it, in, again, it's a mystery book. As you said, it can't be coincidence. Yeah. And, and even it's just, it's just very, very unlikely that. Right. Right. There wasn't there isn't some even if it wasn't as simple as by going to arrange the funeral she got in touch with someone who bore a grudge against her family sort of thing there you go you know some something it could it could even just be something like you know she went to arrange the funeral and on the way out of the building she bumped into you know just the sure yeah the fact of her even going to that place set off a a series of events that wouldn't have happened otherwise um right and i think hawthorne's trying to describe that like that's what he was really pushing for right yes um it remind the reason i that's that kind of struck a chord with me is it made me think of um i recently reread um the unpleasantness at the bologna club by dorothy l sayers oh yeah okay which, i haven't read that but um, I, i've seen it uh, well i i won't i won't spoil it but it has a um <laughs> It actually, it's a it's a book that's about the order of death thing. Um, it's okay. like two, yes. okay. two people died sort of supposedly on the same day, but one of their bodies wasn't discovered until the next day. And he could have been dead for for longer, but no, you know, right. it, it, you can't really tell. And the medical evidence is a bit unreliable and all this kind of right. thing. And um, yeah, the so the but the coincidence of them both dying on the same day. Um, is is what sort of um, obsesses the detective yeah sure yeah 
so that's that's what Hawthorne was trying to push, like kind of say is had she not gone to the funeral home, she wouldn't have died because Cornwallis wouldn't have recognized her. He wouldn't have had this access to her funeral. And mm. he he was trying to get a Damien. So he, he that nothing would have happened. I was going to say, what's the uh, resolution of the fire at the judge's house? I'll I'll get to that. I'm gonna okay. I'll I'll go through it. Okay, so she. It had been they're they kind of they go to Damien's death first. They say it was easy for Cornwallis to slip the radio into the coffin. Exactly what you were kind of trying to get at. Could someone at the funeral home have done it? Yes, definitely. Uh, it was easy. It was easy for him, and he knew it would upset Damien because he had been at Rada at the same time. So he had seen this mm. connection and knew it would trigger him. And the reason he had thought of Rada and of Teal is because, and this is something you wouldn't have known, so I'm I'm sorry, because I didn't, I can't go into all the details, but Anthony had asked uh, Cornwallis on their very first interview, he had asked him about, had Diana mentioned anything about the Godwins? Mm-hmm. And okay. so Cornwallis hadn't been thinking about the Godwins, but now he knew that the police investigation was going in that, doc- that direction, and so this radio allowed him to use that uh kind of misdirect them which as because you're asking that's the same thing with the fire he was using he had set fire to the house as a misdirection because the judge it would make them think the judge was involved right so he was trying to make it seem like that other side of the story was the correct one yes correct yeah i see yeah so then the other the other thing that hawthorne goes into is he's kind of saying to anthony that diana why why had diana wanted to plan her funeral why had that same day had she resigned from the globe Mm. theater why is the cat so important and so he's kind of saying diana diana didn't have a lot to live for the main things that were important to her were her son that didn't call her very often and her husband who had died she didn't have very many friends and now her cat that's kind of the only thing that's really keeping her going goes missing She's already been thinking about suicide. That's why she has so many sleeping pills in her mm. in her medicine cabinet. She wasn't worried. She was kind of stockpiling them. She's already considering suicide. Her cat's gone. That's why she goes to plan her funeral. Because she knows she's going to die. Because she's planning her death. I see. Right, yes. Because I didn't even consider that. That I Once you accept that the um, her murder and the funeral planning are linked like that... I sort of stopped thinking about it but actually yes why did she even go and plan the funeral um as, right. we, as we sort of talked about it's not necessarily something everybody just does as a matter of course <laughs> right so there and i think hawthorne was trying to he, he because he's the genius detective he's trying to fit all these clues together and so that's why the cat was so important to him is the the fact that the cat the cat had actually disappeared mm-hmm. and it had just it was an accident so now she's thinking of her 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 committing suicide that's why she that's why she resigns because she knows she won't need that position anymore Mm. and and how all these things have kind of tied in and then the the other kind of important one is you'll remember that text message she said i saw the boy who was lacerated and i'm afraid so it's how does that tie in and how uh not, not Horowitz, how Hawthorne describes it to Anthony is she was clearly so invested in plays. Like she's she's on the globe, she's donating money, her son's an actor. How she would think of people is the characters they had played. And so really what he thinks she sent a text was, was I saw the boy who, play, who was Laertes talking oh. about Dan Roberts in 
Hamlet from all those years ago, and I'm afraid. And it had auto-corrected on her, the text she had sent to Damien. And, but why was she afraid? Just because of his manner? He seemed weird, or... Yeah, we, we're not sure, but that's what Hawthorne kind of thinks, is that clearly this guy is... There's something wrong with him. And so when he comes into the house, I should also say, there's so many loose ends to tie up. Uh, he had taken her credit card earlier in the day as an excuse to come visit her and bring back her credit uh, card. So that's why I was sitting on the mantle. That's why it was... Right, right, right. Right. So she knows this man, but she doesn't know him very well. So he comes into the house, he he maybe or maybe she offers him a glass of water because he's he's looking weird and she's recognized him she now knows who that who he is and he's in her house and she's feeling weird about it and so she goes into the kitchen takes this time to send the quick text thinks she's okay now because now damien supposedly knows who this boy is Mm. brings back the glass of water in, in that time period he has taken the curtain sash and strangles her right yeah, that that all makes makes sense now. I'd for- forgotten about the loose end of the credit card and the text message, and so yeah, so autocorrect didn't like the name from theatre <laughs> and made it something else, which again seems plausible, right. doesn't it? Right, and so I I would never have clued into that kind of a small detail, no, but it is me neither. the uh, yeah the little things. So I think I have I think that's all the loose ends. But do you have yeah. any questions about how things how things happened? No, I don't think so. I think that um, I, f- I feel like I, I understand it all now. And um, yeah, I think that <laughs> I'm interested, actually, I would be interested now to read it. And um, I think by having the Watson character be himself, Anthony Horowitz yeah. gave himself a very difficult challenge in trying to <laughs> create realistic suspense. Yeah. Because as yeah, you totally. say that he acknowledges um so but it is to but i can it's totally possible to do that there are lots of first person um autobiographies and stuff where they describe thrilling perilous events and you're like and rationally you know well this person's writing this book so they definitely survived yeah, yeah. but but that's a very difficult thing to write definitely if you read it let me know what you think um, mm. or any of any of any of uh, the future series books i want to read them but like it's one of those things of I'll only read it if it comes up in a podcast later on when I have time. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. Um, yeah, another thing I'm interested to see how it comes across on the page is the character of Hawthorne, who um, I think based yes. on what I've heard today, he sounds kind of annoying. Um, so I'm interested to see how he is in in print. Oh my gosh, totally. There's I I left out so much of his character because it just didn't seem important enough to work to the story to mm. kind of include it um yes well i, I think i definitely seek out a horror bits now and and try it out <laughs> yeah i hope you enjoy it mm. uh thank you so so much for coming on doing this it's been a little longer than maybe i expected but it's just it, it's i've had this experience once before but you're so knowledgeable about the subject that it's easy to just talk about other yes. like go off on kind of <laughs> Um, side tangents a little bit which I I personally enjoy I think other people do too it's interesting to hear someone talk about something they're knowledgeable in you know I I hope so um no I've certainly <laughs> enjoyed it so hopefully it'll be fun for people to listen to as well yeah um so once again if 
if you are interested, if you, well, clearly you must like mystery books. If you're listening to my podcast, you should definitely t- check out the She Done It anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, it's 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 more like you you go into very specific subjects on each episode, which is really interesting. To it's not about one book; it's it's all kind of all books in a sense. Yes, I very rarely do a whole episode about a single book. I will sometimes do a right. whole episode about a single author, but not very often. But no, it tends to be thematic, so cutting across a whole range of titles. And they, it's it's fun because even while we were talking about this book. We you started talking about um, the unpleasantness at the Bologna Club and that you wouldn't spoil it. And I just listened to your um, spoilers episode. Mm-hmm. And so it made me think about, oh, when this ties into this and you kind of uh, get to compare a lot of little things as you're reading books, it can tie back to your just some of your shows, which is fun. Which is totally an experience I have all the time um, as I'm reading for other things, I think. Right. Oh, this would have been really good to include in the X right. episode. Yeah, oh, I can imagine. <laughs> There's only so much you can read beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there are actually some of the themes that I'm thinking about eventually revisiting and doing a sort of part uh, yeah. two about them. The one that's um, come up a lot actually is um, I did an episode quite early on about uh mysteries that are set in schools and colleges okay yeah and i've just read so many more of them since that to i add feel to the like list. I, I could do another episode about that as always if you want extra book content and to get updates on future episodes you can go to instagram at tuesday night mystery club and follow the account there if you have any questions comments or concerns and want to contact the podcast you can email Tuesday night mystery club at gmail.com. And finally, if you'd like to support the show further and want bonus content, you can subscribe on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Tuesday night mystery club. And I'd like to thank our current patrons, Michael Borello, Barb McLean, Debbie Kravis, and Emily Shilton. Thank you guys so much. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say before we go? I don't think so. No. Okay. Well then, thank you so much, Caroline. And uh, to everyone at home, thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.